0: I love the fact that we've reinitiated that uh, tradition in this church, having children read uh, scripture. Thank you, Ethan, very much. Good job. Good morning, church. An Adventist preacher, uh, probably about uh, oh, I would say close to a hundred years ago, maybe a little more. Famous for saying, at the end of their sermon, "If you have Jesus at the end of time." When the last tick the clock goes by, you have all you need. Pastor Tim opened the doors of Romans to us last week. Did you do a great job? I really was blessed by your your presence and your sermon, Tim. Um, We looked at quickly through the first argument of Romans, which is one to three, and as he set us up, Today I would like to pick up there and continue on with a, a little bit of deep, a deeper dive into chapter 3. So if you still have that document Tim gave you last week, great. If you don't, um, you can get it from him. I'm not sure how, but you can. It's magic as far as I'm concerned. And um, it's also available in your regular Bible, Romans chapter 3. Would you join me as we start with prayer? Lord, we have just prayed. But for the lumps in her throat, For the clouds over our eyes, for the things that would stand between us and you today, for the next few minutes, we ask for your help, for the preacher, and for each and every one of us, amen. That he might be just. If you miss this as a primary foundational idea within the text of Romans, particularly as it starts, you've missed a great deal. If you miss the argument about the justness of God in forgiving you, you miss a great deal. The text is clearly driving us in these, four, these first three chapters to come to that conclusion. And I'll try to demonstrate that to you today, but if, I think if you miss this understanding, that there is a question in the universe as to whether it is even fair to let you in. For the unfallen, I'm certain there's a question mark about you and I. Are we safe to let in? For those who have never sinned on the, in this universe, and it's hard for me to even imagine that, since I have been swimming in the water and the stench and the, the toilet that is sin that we all live in, my whole life, I don't know what without sin looks like. But for those who have never felt the degradation of sin in their heart, it's a risk for God to save you and to save me. And the Apostle Paul starts us out by saying one of the foundational pillars that you have to understand is how God was both just, He had the right to, it was legal, it was okay, and the justifier, the one who could make you and I just. As if we had not sinned. Paul is driving us to that understanding and that conclusion as we work our way through this particular argument. As Tim told us last week, nobody deserves to get in. The Apostle Paul is clear as he's making the arguments to start this thing. Nobody earned it. We're all in the same boat no matter where we grade ourselves. Nobody passed this class. It's not a bell curve. It's a flat percentage and you didn't make it. But Jesus. So as we open, I want to draw your eye to chapter 3. Verses 3 and 4. He's arguing that the Jewish people had been taught of God all along, but some of them didn't choose to follow God. And in the air, among the Jews and the Christians, there's some conflict in Rome. Remember that the Jewish people had been in Rome for a long time, had assimilated into the culture for in a, in a great part. They had been working among the Romans. They had, they had kind of found a way to get along and get by in the middle of that culture. They had already, in some ways, made some little adjustments to the way they were going to do life so that they could fit in, fill out their, their roles, and prosper. And along come the Christians. And the Christians are these rabble-rousers who are c- continually talking about this guy, Jesus. And disrupting everything. They're disrupting things at the synagogue. They're disrupting things in the market. They're disrupting things politically. They're just disrupting things. It comes to the point that Claudius, one of the early Roman empires, actually kicks all the Christians out of Rome. He says, out, the whole bunch of you. It, it is such that the, that the emperor Nero, when he wants a scapegoat for the burning of Rome... Blames the Christians because they just stuck out. They're that proverbial sore thumb. They're there all the time. And you know what happens to the head that sticks up. It gets whacked back down. You are the mole and whack-a-mole and the hammer is in everybody else's hand. That's the picture here. And it's begun to create some irritation between the Jewish converts to Christianity and the non-Jewish converts to Christianity to the Jewish non-converts to Christianity and Christianity in general. And so Paul starts with the Jewish people have had a great deal of information from God. They had a great blessing from God. And he said, you know, some of them did not believe. But that is not an argument against God. It's an argument against them. What if some did not believe? After getting all these things from God, after all these blessings from God, what if some of them didn't believe? What if some of your Jewish friends live like pagans? What if some people in Christianity in 2023 don't live like Jesus? What if they act hatefully toward you? What if they ripped you off when they sold you something or bought something from you? What if they stand in the marketplace and you're embarrassed that they call themselves Christians? What if they have the sticker on the window of their business and everybody in town knows they're a crook? Jesus says to their culture and to our culture, to you and to me, through the apostle Paul, look, if they're failing, don't blame me. Would their unbelief nullify the faithfulness of God? Does your unbelief or my unbelief nullify the faithfulness of our God? When you have gotten yourself into a terrible hole because you've lied, you've stolen, you've cheated, you've done something you shouldn't have done, when you get yourself into that hole, was it God's fault that you got in the hole? No. So don't blame God. God is faithful, even when we're not. God is the standard, and we are not. The argument starts out, my argument starts out today with, let God be true, and every man a liar. Do not make God culpable for the messed up world you find yourself in. Thank you for one amen. Do not make God culpable for the messed up world you find yourself in. He gave us a perfect gift and we broke it. One of the arguments against creation is sin. Did you know that? that? That materialist people who argue against a creator argue that he didn't do a very good job. That if, if God were really good and really powerful and all the things Christianity and, and Judaism says that he is, that there would be no sickness, There would be no death. There would be no degradation in the planet. We wouldn't have hurricanes and earthquakes and violence and fire and all of the things that we have. And whenever something like that happens, they shake their fist at heaven and say, See! And unfortunately, there's some fingers pointing from the church to... And we say, if my house fell down in the earthquake, the fire, the hurricane, the tornado, if it happened to me, it's God's fault. Right? But God is faithful to us. We broke our toys. Don't blame God if the wheels come off. Romans chapter three quotes Psalm 14:1 to3. In Paul's argument, he says, "As it is written, "There is none righteous, how many? None. No, not one. In case we miss none righteous, no, not one. Look at your neighbor. Look at your other neighbor. They're looking at you too. Right? No, not one. There is none who understands, none who seeks after God. But wait a minute. I've spent the last 40 years of my life studying and seeking after God. Every day. All the time. Without pride or selfishness, with humility. I've not been so good. I've been not, I'm not even sure I could count half the days to be fully committed to seeking after God. Could you? And I get paid to do it. You guys do it for nothing. None who seek after God, they have all turned aside. And I know Psalms is an Old Testament passage, but do not make the mistake of applying this only to someone else. The none is us. The nun is all of us. Nobody qualifies. But the Jewish church within Rome says, wait a second. We're good church people. We go to synagogue every Sabbath. We've been studying Torah since we could read and even before. We've memorized vast amounts of the text. We follow after God. We study. We pray. We do it religiously. We invented religiously. And they did, actually. Is there no benefit to being in church? Isn't the church a little better? Aren't church people a little better? And the answer comes back. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All I'm doing right now is reminding you what Tim said last week. Nobody has the right to point a finger no matter how bad the other person's criminality. Nobody has the right to point a finger because all of sinned. We're all in the same boat. We're all in that boat and up that creek, sands paddle. We have no hope. Aren't you glad you came to church today? So the corollary question is, if it's no better to be a church person, why be a church person? Why go? Why spend your money? Why spend your time? Why drag your kids in here? They didn't want to come this morning, you dragged them in anyway. Thank you for dragging your kids to church. Keep doing it. They too will thank you someday. It may not be now. You may be dead when they're thanking you, but they will. So Paul comes back with the answer. And he begins to build his argument. What advantage then has the Jew? You can assert yourself here. What, in the, what advantage here has the Groff? What advantage here has the Dimmick? What advantage here has the Peterson? What advantage here has the Ashlock? What advantage here has you? Much, in every way. Should be a song, right? Chiefly because to them, to the Jew, to the church, were committed the oracles of God. The, Hebrew, the Greek word here is the Logia of God. John gave us this word. John introduced us to this word in First John, right? Or in, in John one, he said, "In the beginning was the Word." And we've we've been taught and taught and taught was the Logos. It was this is the Greek word for for word, right? In the beginning was the Word. The Word created everything. Remember, God said, and it happened. He created through his simple proclamation. And he says of you, you have such tremendous advantage because you have been given the word. You have been given the word, the the words, certainly the text, the information of the law, the prophets, the Psalms. You have been given the Gospels. You have been given the theological letters. You have been given the pastoral letters. You have been given the apocalyptic letters. All of those are yours. Certainly this is the scriptural text. But there is also a word that speaks in your heart. Don't miss this one. Because there is a word that you hear as a whisper from God most of the time. It's one of those whispers that you cannot ignore. It's so subtle and so quiet, it might as well be a scream. Because it comes at you. And the power of the Holy Spirit, who dwells within you, which is crazy by its own magic, the power of the Word within you, God gives you direction. I was, uh, this week, in my thinking and my preparation to have some time with the Keen family and with Logan. And I don't know if this is why. But I reached into my own pocket where I have this this big yellow smashed piece of glass. This piece of glass is in my pocket representing my boys. I have three sons two daughters. So the big piece of glass is the boys the small piece of glass is the girls. It's easier for me to keep track of no matter how Obliterated, my brain is at the moment, and I, as I pulled it out, I kind of put my hand in there, and I pulled it out, and the, there's this subtle, quiet whisper that I could not ignore. It was simply said, "Pray for the relationship between your boys." I hadn't been thinking about that before. hadn't crossed my mind until I came in contact with that little reminder I have in my pocket. And the Spirit whispered, pray for the relationships. One with another. All three of my boys are together right now. I don't know, and may never know, why on Thursday I was praying for the relationships between my boys. That's the word. You have the textual word. But you also have the Holy Spirit who whispers into your life if you keep your ear open and you hear. When the, te- when the church is asking, well, why be in this thing? It costs us so much. The Romans are willing to throw us into the lion's den like Daniel of old. The Romans are willing to kill us or crucify us. Why be in this? He says, God has chosen to reveal himself to the world. And you people have had the good sense to hang on to the revelation. You are blessed in every way. And beyond the revelation of the text, he speaks to you. Let your brain explode. I'm not sure I got on that slide. Must have pushed the button while I was in my pocket. What advantage then does have the Jew? Much and every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. But if everyone is unrighteous, God just can't forgive them. So, this group is going to heaven. I'm sorry about you folks over there. This group is not. Jesus said, and there's the question. How did this group get in and that group get left behind? Or how did this group get in and this group get left behind? Why? Why does God have the right to make such decisions? Because yeah. <laughs> He is God and we are not. But if all of us are unrighteous, as Pastor Tim said, why do some of the unrighteous get in? God can't just forgive them, can he? He can't just wipe the slate, can he? He can't just decide, you get to go in. You, way wait, wait, wait for you. So the people in the church and in the world are asking this question of the apostles. And they're still asking that question. If you believe that God will save some and not all, who died and left him in charge? I better pick up the pace. And this is when the argument comes in. Let God be true. Let God's judgment be considered righteous. Let God be understood as the one who has the right to do it. And everyone else a liar. And realize how strong this is. Because you could be on that liar's side, right? When I'm wagging my finger at God about some injustice that I think he's allowed, I'm on the liar's side. I try not to wag my finger at God, but occasionally I see something in the world that I think, "Why what what's why? Forgive me for saying this out public Lord. What's the matter with you? How could you let that happen? Some of the injustices that regularly happen in our world break my heart some of the things that the broken, perverted behavior of mankind causes break my heart. And they go on in millions of places all the time. And I stand there with these folks saying, God, come on. And the Apostle Paul says, no, 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 no. You of all people, Walt, don't get to wag your finger at God. Let God be right. Let God be righteous. Let God be just. And all of your tiny little brains understanding be classified where it belongs. In the place where tiny little brains gain their understanding. In Psalm 51, David has this interesting line. It's against you and you only I have a sinned and done this evil in your sight. And then he says that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. When somebody wags their finger and says, Why did this bad thing happen to David? Let them hear me say it was on me. Let them hear me say I sinned against you and the punishment, whatever that might be, for what I did is on me, not on you. David said this. Paul yanks it all the way from the psalm into the New Testament and says, if you want to understand the justice of God, let's start with David's confession. David said, I did it, my fault, it was against you. It wasn't against anything else. It was all as if I were standing there shaking my fist in your face. My fault, whatever I get, I own, I deserve. When they ask, was it fair? It was. When the world, my family, or even me, stands up and says, Do you really think this is a just thing, God? David says, before the punishment starts, before the role of my responsibilities, before the wrath of my own behavior starts to roll out into my life, let it be known to all that you were right. Why does David get to be called the man after God's own heart? Because of crazy stuff like that. Because the man gets it. He may get it deeper than most anybody ever has. And this psalm gives us this, this classic kind of vision into his heart as he understands very, very deeply that his offense against everyone in the story is a direct offense against their Father and Creator who loves them immensely. And he said, whatever is coming, whatever happens next, you're right. You have the right. Let no one hold my bad behavior as some kind of an example of your not being judged. I acknowledge my transgressions and my sins always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. I've given you a slightly different translation. So far, do you have the underpinnings of what I've been trying to tell you? Let's carry forward. Some might say our sinfulness serves God's purposes. This is Paul. Some of you might say our sinfulness serves God's purposes then because it it indicates god is right it indicates god's justice it, it tells us how righteous god is when i sin the comparison between me and what god has done he comes makes clearer what god is and who god is it, it helps to demonstrate his righteousness isn't it unfair then for him to punish us david did dem- demonstrated that his sin helped people understand how righteous god was if that's the case Isn't it unfair for him to punish us, for us to all say, we're bad, look at him. We look at the argument, some of us go, what? And some of us go, they got a point. Paul says you don't have a leg to stand on. Of course not. This is the strongest negative you can have in the Greek. In English, you would have to throw in a curse word to be this strong. Of course not. What are you, out of your mind? What's wrong with you? If God were not entirely fair, how would he be qualified to judge the world? You see, the question that's underlying all of these questions is, is God qualified to judge the world? Is God qualified to decide who gets in and who gets out? Who Does he think he is? I like that answer better. That one's a little too general. The answer in the back said, our creator. Some people even slander us, claiming that we say the more we sin, the better it is. Those who say such things deserve to be condemned. A little insertion from Paul. Those who say such things deserve the judgment of God. I'm not sure he should have said it. I'm not sure I should say some of the things I say. But get what he's, what he's saying. What we're not hearing is that in this letter, he's answering some questions that people have asked. Some things that have come to him already. Remember, there's communication within the church about what's going on, this place and that. And somebody has said, you know that Paul, he basically teaches that the more you sin, the better God looks. So
1: let us have at it.
0: And Paul said, it's slanderous that they would say such a thing. He wants the the Romans to understand, and by virtue of our opportunity to read this book, us as well. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed. Now, if you notice, I've skipped way near the end of this chapter. He's laying down the argument that righteousness can be given as a gift to mankind that we all agree we don't deserve. Right? Right? That we all agree we don't deserve? That 30% of us agree that we don't deserve? But now, the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed. Paul is writing post-crucifixion. And he is saying, in the cross, the opportunity for us to have righteousness that we don't deserve has been opened up to us. It's been shown to us. It's been revealed to us that we can have righteousness by entrusting ourselves to God. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. However, there's righteousness that will be given to you if you want it. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who is actually seeking after God, but because of the crucifixion of Jesus, because of the resurrection of Jesus, there's a righteousness offered that no one deserves. And in the humility of recognizing you don't deserve it, you get to cut off your index finger and quit pointing at people. Because in the recognition that I don't deserve it is the recognition that no one deserves it. No one deserves it. No one deserves it. No one deserves it. it. For there is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified freely by what? There is no difference. Between what? Between you and you. And you, 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 and you. And all the you's out there. There is no difference. No one qualifies for this. No one measures up for this. Paul is trying to establish some baseline understanding theologically for us. But we have to keep coming back to it. I know that you've heard this before, but you have to come back to it. It may be new to some of you. You will have to come back to it. You have to, you have to, you have to recognize the foundational pillars of the house. Hold up the house. Here's the foundational pillars. He's laying the groundwork for his argument. He's laying the groundwork for the theology that he will build on top of it. You have to understand. You don't have the right to point fingers. You have to understand that no one deserves salvation. You have to understand that God is just in giving it. And if you don't understand that, you don't understand. And the house theologically that you've built on whatever weird foundation you have is about to crumble when a slight wind blows through. Through the redemption that is Christ Jesus whom God set forth as a propitiation. There's a word you don't use much by His blood through faith. As God makes Christ the propitiation, the intervening sacrifice. I love this other picture of it. One of the the arguments, one of the theological arguments for the best way to understand this word is to see it as describing the mercy seat. Remember the mercy seat? I know I'm kind of reaching into the recesses of some of your brains. Remember that when God created the Ark of the Covenant, the place where his presence would be, would be, would be st- I wanted to say standing, but it seems not to stand, it seems to hover. The Ark of his presence, the Ark of, Ark of the Covenant has his presence over the top of it. At the top of this thing, inside the Ark of the Commandments, and over top of the Ark is the mercy seat. And the presence of God is manifested mercy seed and one of the arguments is that when you read this propitiation you should read Jesus Christ is the personification of the mercy seed that when you go to the presence of God he is most solidly founded on mercy that Jesus has the propitiation for our sins the, the one who makes it okay who makes it right who makes it makes God approachable who makes a way as Hebrew says where there was no way who lets us into the presence of God, splits the veil and lets us walk into the presence of God because of His blood, because of His sacrifice, because of His holiness, because of His righteousness, because of His standing as God and man. He's built a bridge across a chasm we could not cover. And He invites us, every single one of us on the planet, to take advantage of this offer. I will give you righteousness... That you cannot earn. Outside of the law, the law has continually shown you that you cannot earn it. And now that you are at the the end of your rope and recognize that you can't make yourself good enough to be accepted by God, let me show you what I have for you. Here's your opportunity. Here's your, uh, your option. Here's your opening. Walk into the presence of God. Don't be afraid. I got you. I cover you. I'm with you. I am the way into the presence of God. I am the way into the reconciliation of this relationship. I am the way for you to be restored to the relationship that Adam and Eve had before the fall, before you were glorified. You know, when you offer somebody a relationship with Jesus, when you say to someone what you need in your life is a walk with Jesus... You're handling him, all of that. You're saying to them, no, you don't deserve it, but Jesus is offering it, and if you want it, you can have it. And even after you get it, you won't deserve it. And even after you've been following him your whole life, deep down inside, though everyone else may look at you and say, now there's a saint, you will know the old man of sin is still fighting you every day for leadership and rulership in your life. And that every day you have to go to battle with your desires, which are desires for things outside of what God desires for you. Every day we will prove that we are unrighteous still. Every day he continues to hold that blood over our filth to, pro- to give us the throne. And so we come to the end, God, to demonstrate His righteousness. Because, in His forbearance, God passed over the sins that were previously committed. Whew. I hate Paul's sentences. To demonstrate His righteousness, because all this time before the cross, He had been overlooking the sins of people who had come and confessed. The sins of people who had come to Him and asked. The sins of people He did not punish or judge in the the moment and on the spot. He had kept letting people get away with stuff. God demonstrated His righteousness because of His forbearance, having passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith, In Jesus, God is trying to prove something here. He is saying that I have made Jesus a propitiation for your sin. I have made a plan. We have made a plan. We were in on a decision to save you when we knew you were going to fall, which happened before we created you. And in that moment, we decided that we were going to rescue you. And the cross was going to happen. The resurrection was going to happen. And we were going to offer that to you to rescue you from what you had gotten yourself into it into long before Adam and Eve were even made. We made a way when there wasn't even a way needed. And it was there in that moment that the righteousness of every person who was declared righteous in spite of themselves was both granted and foreknown. And in Jesus, it came to fruition, and you all saw it. And Paul says, now that you have had an opportunity to see what Jesus did, you are really blessed people because you are looking back at the cross, recognizing what was done, where everyone before you was looking forward to the cross, unaware of what was going to happen. You are better off than they were, and they are covered, and you better not complain. I added that last part for me. God is declaring his righteousness for all the forgiveness that he's passed out for all the time that it has been needed on this crummy little planet. And he is demonstrating it in the cross. And he's saying, if you don't understand that self-sacrifice is how you got in, then you don't understand. Paul says, I want you to know at the outset that God has the right to forgive your sins. I want you to know Romans. Those of you Jewish Romans who are having trouble with the Christians, all the forgiveness that's been offered to you through the sanctuary system, it was Jesus. Those of you Jewish Romans who became Christians, who are struggling with the other Christians, because they, they're not Jewish, they're not circumcised, they're not in any way measuring up as you understand measuring up. And he's still giving them, granting them a covering of his righteousness. I want you to understand that this has always been the case. Jesus was always the center of the sanctuary. He was the mercy seat, for goodness sake. when the Lamb was sacrificed, it was Jesus. When the sin offering was made, it was Jesus. When the Day of Atonement sacrifices were made, they were all Jesus. And he said, the reality is you already know this. preacher I talked about at the beginning, wrote this about now. She wrote, the last rays of merciful light, the last message of mercy to be given to the world, is a revelation of his, God. Why is Paul so worked up as he starts this argument about the just and righteousness of God? Justness and righteousness of God. Why is he so dug in about trying to get us to understand it? Because this is the key understanding of the character of God. That he loved you and I so much that he was willing to die to get us an opportunity to go to heaven. And you can ignore it, and he won't wipe you off the face of the planet today. You can go completely against it. You can argue against him. Be the the harshest critic of God for your whole life, and he will still cover you, feed you, give you air, and let you live. And if the day comes when you, that harsh critic, turns to face him, says, "I, I probably shouldn't even be saying this. but would there be a possibility that you'd let me in? I believe Jesus died for me. That He, with full, righteous justice, would say yes. He has the right... To wipe away sin. He has the authority to wipe away sin. Because he paid for it. A few weeks ago, if I can beg your memory. We talked about a man lowered through a roof in front of Jesus. And I told you Jesus' words are missed in that passage. I had missed them for a long, long time. Jesus when the man lands in front of him says your sins are forgiven and you and I and all the people who are watching think so how how dumb are we and Jesus turns to the Pharisees who are saying he doesn't have the right to do this that's blasphemy he turns to the Pharisees and says so that you will know that the son of man has the author Authority, the just right. I don't mean just right like, a, oh, that's just right. I mean the just, the righteous, the appropriate right. He has the authority to forgive sins. Rise up, take up your bed and walk. Paul spends a great deal of his magnificent theological education in mind to explain to the Romans and to us that God has the right to forgive anyone and everyone. Therefore, we do not have the right to condemn anyone ever. And that at the cross it was demonstrated to us in living Let God be just. Let God be right. And let all the rest of us be liars. Because we don't have the right to judge the one who died to save. Father in heaven, thank you for such a crazy plan, for choosing the likes of us again today. For choosing to leave the door open for anyone alive and breathing still. Again today I choose the covering of Jesus' sacrifice. Again today we choose and claim His blood for us. I pray for the person who's online or present who's in the valley of that decision. Lord, I ask that your spirit would speak the words they need to hear to to accept this amazing offer. Thank you for the cross.
1: Amen.
0: So much that we don't understand. Thank you for grace bigger than our sin. For the call back to fellowship with you and relationship with you.
2: In Jesus' name, amen. I just want to speak the name of Jesus over every heart and every mind. I know there is peace within your presence. I speak, Jesus. I just want to speak the name of Jesus. Till every dark addiction starts to break. Declaring there is hope and there is freedom, I speak, Jesus. Your name
1: is power, your name is healing. Just want to speak the name of
2: Jesus over fear and all anxiety to every soul held captive by. Jesus, for my family, I speak the holy name, Jesus. Shout! your
1: name
0: As we close today, I just want to invite you to plan to stay for one of our discipleship classes. Rubbing shoulders with other people who are struggling on the same path you are does help. I want to remind you that there will be a group over here. They'll just kind of walk up unceremoniously, but it is an invitation to prayer. The prayer group will gather in a a team over here. If you have anything that you would like to pray over, they would like to, to pray over it with you. If you did not know that you could walk out of here covered by the blood of Christ, Mm -hmm. would you, one, make sure that you understand that right now? That is the truth. Would you join those folks and have them pray over that decision this morning? Would you let one of the pastors know, me, the bald guy who looks like me that's back there on the base? Or Pastor Marlene, who did Children's Story today, we would also love to pray with you about it. Ultimately, there is one decision in the world. That is whether or not we'll follow Jesus' home. Everything else pales to nothing. Thank you for being with us today. God bless you. Greet someone on your way out that you don't already know or someone that you do know. Fellowship strengthens the church. God bless you.
1: Tree. My faith is cold and tired And the light feels so